Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. Thank you, music team, for leading us in song. Thank you to the rest of you for playing along with Mark and Matt and making up for their actions. It's good to hear you sing. We don't quite sing it like the Gettys do. I'm not sure if you've heard the Gettys. They wrote that with Stuart Townend. And if you haven't heard the Gettys or you don't know many of their songs, I encourage you to go look them up and go find uh, songs by them. We don't sing it quite like them, but it is good to sing the same truths that are being sung around the world, the same truths that hold us together, the truths that we find in the scriptures that come to light to us when we sing them. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I'm going to read to the end of verse 18. That'll be the passage we look at this morning. Let's read together. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of, true, word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's just take a moment to bow and pray. Father, we come before you this morning in Jesus' name. That is, Lord, typically how we conclude our prayers in Jesus' name, but we recognize coming before you even from the very beginning that we can only come and stand before you, sit before you, kneel, fall prostrate before you, King of kings and Lord of lords because of what Jesus has done. So we come to you in Jesus' name, and we ask for a great deal many things. There are many of us who hurt, who are in pain, who are suffering in many different ways, emotionally, physically, spiritually. There are many of us who have struggles and trials. We have many things to ask you of, many things to bring before you and ask for help, ask for peace. Lord, you know the individual needs. You know the individual hearts of your people here this morning and the people who aren't here. Your people who aren't gathered with us physically right now, but your people who call themselves Crestwick Baptist Church, you know what we need. We ask now that as we come to your word, in Jesus' name, that you would show us by the power of your Holy Spirit, open it to our eyes, help us to see clearly who you are, help us to see Jesus, to praise him and adore him. And Lord, we pray that you would help us and change us to be more like him, conform us to the image of your Son, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things, amen. Last night, Candace and our family, we 
uh, drove through Toronto. We picked up my brother-in-law and his girlfriend, and we, we went for dinner, combined birthday dinner for Amelia and uh, my brother-in-law, James. James's birthday is actually November 11th, and then Amelia's is the 12th. So we did a combined family birthday thing. We went to Eastside Mario's, and Amelia and Naomi were very excited to be uh, picking up Uncle James and Maya. We were, they were very excited to see them again, to, to be able to hang out with them, but they couldn't quite figure out where they came from. We picked them up at Yorkdale. I don't know if you've ever been to Yorkdale. There's millions of cars everywhere and millions of people, and there's TTC buses and stuff. And what we had told Amelia, we're picking up Uncle James and Maya from the train. The train, okay. She didn't see the train, and she couldn't quite understand the train, and so she was asking as we were on the way to drop them off after dinner, Uncle James where are you going? Where is the train? And so he tried to explain, well, it's, it's called a subway. And actually, it's, it's underground. It's like a train, but it's underground. It goes through tunnels. And you can, see, you can see on her face, she was trying to work through, okay, so it's a train. But I've seen trains before, and they're not underground. This is like a train. And you can see her trying to piece all this together. And we finally realized that concepts that we understand as adults that we just take for granted... When you are forced to explain that to a three-year-old, you really have no idea what you're talking about. You really realize, oh my goodness, I don't know what a subway is. How does it run? I don't know. It just goes. Uh, how do you get from A to B? That's a good question, sweetie. We'll ask somebody later. But we used all of these, these, these phrases like this. It's kind of like this. It goes through, well, it's not really a tunnel like you build. It's not like the tunnel that the groundhogs build. It's, it's a tunnel that we build. It's like this, sweetie. It's kind of like that. Sort of works kind of like this. Parents, you've done that before, right? You'll admit, or if, you, if you've been around children and you're trying to explain anything, you use the term like a lot. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like that. You don't even have to be a parent. You just When you try to explain to somebody what your favorite food is like and why they should try it, it's kind of like this. Or if you're trying to get your kid to eat it, it tastes like chicken, okay? Just eat it. It tastes like chicken. It's fine. Or it tastes like peanut butter. Look, we put peanut butter on it. Just eat it. It's like peanut butter. When we are trying to explain things to people, we, we always draw from other stuff, right? We draw from other analogies or another ways of thinking so that we can help people understand what we're talking about. Paul, in our passage this morning, he says in verse 15, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. He does the same thing that we so often do when we're talking with people and trying to explain things. He says, you will shine like stars in the sky, like stars in the sky. So whatever Paul has been talking about, his analogy here, shining like stars in the sky, that's to help us understand the whole point of what he's talking about. Why we do what we do. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, well not the past couple, but before we had a couple of guest speakers, as we've been working through Philippians, you'll, you'll note that in, in chapter one, Paul was talking about the gospel. That was his priority. That was his first major thing. Whatever was happening to him, it was the gospel first, preaching the gospel. Then he shifted at the end of chapter 1 in verse 27, and he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever you do, however you act, however you think, however you live, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he picks up and he explains what that means. Standing together, striving together in the world, being unified together outside of the church for one common goal, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he moves into chapter two and he says, but that affects how you live and act inside of the church too. It's not just that you're putting on a face out there in the world striving together. You are to strive for unity, for harmony together inside of the church. You care about yourself and your own interests, which makes sense. 
But he says, care about others' interests. Put others' interests before yourself. Care more about each other than you care about yourself. Strive for unity. And then he says, to help us understand that, have the same mindset as Christ. Think like Christ. Be like Christ in the way that you strive for unity. The way that you put other people in front of yourselves, here's the example that Christ gave. He had everything and had every right and privilege that was due to him as equal with God because he was God. And he gave that up for sinners. He gave that up for you so that you could come into the presence of God. Have that mindset. Being willing to give up what is rightfully yours for the sake of others. Not just for no reason. Not for your own selfish pride. Not for selfish gain for anybody. But so that other people might come to know who Jesus is. So that other people might, as it says at the end of verse 11, be done for the glory of God the Father. That's the point. So we've got all of that in the back of our minds as Paul moves into verse 12 of chapter 2. And he says, Therefore, Building on everything that he said, bring this into what we're now going to understand what Paul is trying to tell us, what we're doing. What's the point? Yes, because Jesus said so. When my children ask why, Naomi's gotten into the why stage. The the temptation is just to say, because I said so. Stop it. Just stop asking. It's because I said so. And that is a valid and legitimate reason because we ought to obey. Children ought to obey their parents because they ought to. We ought to obey Jesus because he says so, because we ought to obey precisely because of who he is and who we are. And yet, Paul recognizes and understands, though that is a valid answer, there is more going on because we are to shine like stars in the sky. So he gives two exhortations before he actually gets to the example of what we're doing, the shining like stars. The first exhortation is work out your salvation. There's a bunch of stuff in and around that phrase that help us understand and qualify what that actually means. He's building on what's come before, and he says, My dear friends, as you have always obeyed. He's speaking as friends. He's not speaking down to them. He has every right as an apostle of Jesus Christ to say, You must do this, and you must obey because of who I am and who you are. But he says, Dear friends, fellow believers, fellow soldiers in Christ, as we stand together, as you have always obeyed. He's not rebuking them. He's not saying you haven't obeyed, you've never obeyed, and now you must start to obey. As you have always obeyed, as you have continued to work, as you have continued to obey, he says, continue to work out. He says, even though I'm not there, he brings up his absence again. He says, Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. He wants them to be sincere. He wants them to be genuine. He's mentioned his absence a few times because he's in prison and because he can't be with them. He longs to be with them. He wants to be with them so bad. But even though I can't be there, this is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to work. He says, work out your salvation. As you have always obeyed, continue to work out. Those phrases are tied together. Those phrases are are to be seen as obedience. What we have always done, what they have always done in obedience is meant to be seen as continuing to work out. Paul is commending them for their obedience in the past. Obedience of what? The things that he's just called them to. As you have always obeyed. As you have always strived for unity. We get to the end of Philippians, chapter 4. We see that there's some problems with unity. There's these two women who aren't unified in who they are and what they're doing. And it's actually causing divisions and pulling divisions, pulling people apart within the church. 
Because when you give up unity, it creates a mess. When you give up that same common goal, it becomes a mess. But he says, you've always strived. You've always tried. You're always continuing to work. When we think about working out salvation, there are some that want to say that this is talking about working for your salvation. There are some who want to look at the text and they try to piece other texts together and they go, see, what Paul is saying is, is that you have to actually work for your salvation. You have to actually work out, you have to work for, work towards and grasp for yourself your own salvation. However, that just doesn't fit with what he's been talking about. He's not talking to people about how they get saved. He's talking about how you as Christians, how you as believers in Jesus Christ, he's talking about how you guys live out the fact that you are saved, how you guys work that out. You have been given a great gift in Jesus Christ, and now you are called to work that out. One commentator put it this way, this is not a soteriological text. It's a big word. This is not a text about how people get saved. It's an ethical text, how people who are saved live out their faith. Their working out has to do with their obedience to Christ. We obey Christ, and therefore, in our obedience, we are working out what is already true in our hearts. This is not not a working for salvation. It's not a working towards that you might possibly one day be worthy of salvation. Salvation has already been granted, and salvation in your heart, in your life, is worked out. In other words, it's displayed. It's shown to be real. It's shown to be tangible, because words can be empty. There was a big election that happened this past week in the States. And I don't, even, I don't need to say anything about that, but we can know from our own politics, from politics everywhere, that words can be empty. Things can be said, things can be promised, things can be proclaimed, that are later found to be false, not true, empty. They were false words, false promises. Paul says, you believers who claim salvation in Jesus Christ, as you have always done, please, dear friends, continue to work out your salvation. Display, show to be real. How? Together, working together in obedience to Christ, in obedience to what he has called us to do. Strive together for unity. Then he says another qualifying thing that he adds on, with fear and trembling. It modifies how we are to obey. It modifies how we are to work out our salvation. Fear and trembling, if we were to take, um, if if you were to go through the Old Testament and see those phrases, how fear and trembling fit into what we are called to do as the people of God, fear and trembling always happens in the presence of God. When you understand who God is and who you are, when you understand who God is and what you've done and what that means, standing before a holy God as a sinner, there is always fear and trembling. And yet, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we stand before the Father. We stand in Him complete, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, what is Paul saying? Saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling in the sense that we are to be afraid and scared of God. No, he's saying, With that same mindset that came as you worked through the Old Testament and understood that fear and trembling always happen in the presence of God, the same attitude and same mindset, you bring that into the presence of God. Humility. A recognition that you don't stand on your own because if you did, there would be fear and trembling of a different sort. 
We are not afraid of God, and yet there is awe and reverence and humility in his presence. Humility and submission, recognizing what he has done. Four, verse 13, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is why we have humility. This is why we come with fear and trembling because it is not our works. We are called to work out but not work for because it is God who works in us, not we who work for and attain. His work is the cause. Our work is the effect. God works in you. Not just your actions, not just giving you strength, but he actually works in you to give you the will to do what he wants to fulfill his good purpose, or as some translations put it, his good pleasure. God enables you and I, us and we. He gives us the strength. He changes our hearts and our minds to actually want to strive together for unity for the sake of the gospel. He takes all of your wills and all of your desires and all the things that your mind shoots out with And we all have different hobbies and different habits and different goals, personally and professionally. We have all these sorts of different things that we are striving towards, earthly things that we are striving towards, good things and right things, a happy marriage, healthy family, a good paying job so that you can support your family or yourself or support missionaries. We work hard, we work pushing forward in our jobs, in wherever we are, whether you're in school or wherever. We push forward in these things, rightly so, And God takes all of those things and he pulls all of our differences together. And he brings us together so that you and I, who might otherwise have nothing else in common, he brings our wills together so that we might have one common unified will, the glory of God the Father in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's nuts. I probably wouldn't have much in common with the rest of you right? There's, there's many of you here who we just don't have much else in common. And yet our wills have been brought together because of the work of God so that we can now act because of his work in us. We can act and work together in obedience to Christ. God's work is displayed in the church, in you and I, in who we are. It's displayed when the church strives for unity and harmony in the proclamation of the gospel. You actually display the work of God in your life. And that moves into the second thing in verse 14. Paul says, do everything. That's his one basic exhortation. And then he has a bunch of qualifying things. Parents like to use this one. Children, do everything without grumbling or arguing or grumbling and complaining or questioning just, just do what I say. Don't grumble. Don't argue. Did anybody get that as a kid? I got that a few times. Just a few. I wasn't a bad kid. I, I listened to my parents very well. Um, do everything. And that everything is talking about specifically the obedience to Christ. Specifically talking about the working out of your salvation, the putting on display of the work of God in your life. That's what the do everything is. So although, perhaps, rightly so, we can take this and tell our children, or we can tell our roommates, or we can tell whoever, 
Just do it. Don't grumble and complain. Children, clean your room. Don't grumble. Bible says so. That's not really what Paul's talking about. Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. That is, as we strive together and work together for unity, for the sake of the gospel, in order that we might display the unity that God has brought together in who we are, that means sometimes we need to sit down and shut up. That what I think is right and best, maybe I should just sit on it for a little bit. That 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 phrase, slow to speak and quick to listen, that's that thought here. That we might be willing to step back and think about others ahead of ourselves. And you know what? I might even be right. And I'm not going to complain about it. I'm not going to go talk to somebody else. I'm not going to try to stir up trouble behind somebody's back. That's what Paul was dealing with. That's what he talked about back in chapter 1. There were people who misunderstood what happened to Paul and what he was doing. And there were grumblings and complaining. There were people who were actually trying to work up and cause trouble for Paul in prison. And Paul says, don't let that be you. Yeah, there, there are rights and there are wrongs. There are better ways and not so better ways. There is a right color to paint the wall and a wrong color to paint the wall. You don't need to grumble and complain and stir up trouble behind people's backs. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. That everything is also qualified in the sense of by everything. I think that's where parents do get it right sometimes. That really does mean everything. That is, there's no sacred category. There's no category of church that, well, I'm not going to complain at church, but everywhere else I can complain. I'm going to complain about what happened at the members meeting. I'm not going to do that. But I'll complain about things, Bible study, work. I, I can complain in other areas. And I do this where I just say I'm venting. I just got to get something off my chest. <laughs> Somebody else use that excuse? <laughs> no. Um, we use the excuse of I'm just trying to get something. I just got to say this one thing and then I'm done. Paul says, no, wherever you are, do everything without grumbling or arguing or complaining. You don't just obey Jesus at church. You obey Jesus and his call for unity. Coming through Paul, you do that everywhere in everything. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure. Paul is not saying so that you might become children of God. That's where some people want to take, you might become children of God if you do this. You have to work for your salvation, and if you do this well enough, you might become children of God. We have been declared children of God on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. You and I are already children. We are sons and daughters of the King. We have been adopted into His family. So what Paul is now saying is, you might become blameless and pure. By by striving for that unity... By striving for unity outside of the church, inside of the church, working hard together, you become innocent. That is blameless in the sight of the world. Blameless in terms of accusations. Nobody can actually say you talk one way and act another. You guys look really good on Sunday and you talk a good talk, 
but I hear the way you talk about each other outside when everybody isn't there. Paul says there's, there's not to be any of that. Paul wants them to become, to become actually what they are positionally. We are blameless and pure in the sight of God because of Jesus. Now act like it. And that's done by ceasing our bickering, by ceasing our complaining, by stopping our whining and arguing together and coming together in the one will that God has given us. And then we get to our our analogy that Paul has. He says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. This is the whole point. This is the one thing that he wants us to, to understand. He breaks it down for us and he says, then you will be like shining stars in the sky. Stars in our context in Guelph and in the GTA, we don't really get to see them. There's too many lights. There's too many other things that are shining and causing a light that we can't actually see what's in the sky. But in the ancient Near East, in, well, basically before electricity, which you don't have to go back that far before you get that, stars, you could see them very clearly. And stars were more than just pretty things that um, people look through telescopes to see. They were actually guiding lights. They were the ways by which you could actually see and determine where you were and how to get to where you were going. Sailors used them. Travelers used them. People exploring new lands. The way you got back to where you started or where you, where you wanted to go was by understanding where the stars were in the sky and that pointed you in the right direction. Paul says that we don't remove ourselves from the world. We are children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. We are inside of the warped and crooked generation. We are inside of the dark world. We are not removing ourselves from the world. We're inside of it. But we become those guiding lights. Those lights that point people to the answer, to the way that they should be going. We do that by holding firmly to the word of life. We hold fast to it. Because that's what our unity is found in. Our unity is found in this. This is the one thing that's brought us together here this morning. You might have other common things with other people, but this is the one thing that has brought us here this morning. And more poignantly, it's Jesus Christ specifically. He is the one person who has brought us together. And we hang on to that. We hold on to him. So that Paul's boast... When we hold firmly to the word of life, striving together for unity, Paul's boast, because he says, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. That is, he will be excited and happy and joyful that on the day of Christ, when Christ comes back, he can actually boast about what the Philippians did. That I didn't work or labor in vain. His boast is based on the Philippians living in a manner worthy of the gospel. I boast in the fact that you strive for unity. I boast in the fact that you strive to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Paul is excited at the prospect of standing before Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, look at these people. They're a messed up group, I know. Lord, They had their faults and their failures. They didn't do everything perfectly and they didn't do everything well. But they strived for unity in Jesus Christ. 
Lord, look at the work that you've done. It's your hand at work in them. Paul is excited at that thought. The ceasing of bickering in the pursuit of unity means Paul efforts, Paul's efforts were not in vain. They weren't worthless. They proved to be fruitful. Paul's reason to boast is their growth in faith. This is what he called them to earlier. I want you to grow. I want you to expand. I want you to go deeper. I want you to love more and know more. Paul's excited at that idea. And we do this so that the dark world around us knows what the answer is. It's Jesus Christ, the word of life. Paul has a couple of other verses following that, which when I initially read through this and I was studying this a few weeks ago, I almost didn't know what to make of it. I almost didn't know what to do with it. Because he says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Now you've got to go back to the Old Testament to figure out what a drink offering is. There was a sacrifice that was given in the Old Testament context in the te- temple or tabernacle. There was a, a sacrifice given. Then the drink offering was kind of poured out on top. It was the extra little bit. It wasn't the, the meat of the sacrifice, but it was the thing that was kind of the cherry on top of the sacrificial system. It was the thing that was poured out over what what had happened, the sacrifice being offered to God. And Paul says, using another analogy, he's like a drink offering. That is, his potential death, his potential martyrdom is like the cherry on top of what they've already done. Paul doesn't put himself first. He says, what you guys are doing, your service, your acts coming from your faith, that's the real deal, that's the meat. And what happens to me, that's just the cherry on top. But then he says, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And then he calls them, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. What Paul says is, if I die, you should be glad and rejoice. Now we we recognize and know that when a believer in Jesus Christ passes from this world, from this earth, They go to be with Jesus right now. They are in the presence, and we have many family members and friends who have left this world. They are no longer with us, but they are in the presence of Jesus right now. So in that sense, we can be glad and rejoice. And is that all that Paul's talking about? Possibly. I think Paul's emphasis here is really your joy, your happiness, your gladness is not rooted in your circumstances because we're in the midst of of that warped and crooked generation. And there's going to be a lot of stuff that happens that isn't going to be fun. And it it almost throws you for a curveball when all of a sudden Paul says, but be glad and rejoice. Even if I die, even if I am killed in prison, even if my life is given, and it's really just the little bit extra on top of what you're already doing, be glad and rejoice. Because your joy is not rooted in your circumstance, it's rooted in Christ. You're called to rejoice because the believers, they are suffering for Christ, on behalf of Christ, along with Paul. And because rejoicing over against grumbling and arguing, rejoicing is a mark of those who are in Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you have great reason to rejoice, don't you? Don't you have a reason to be glad? There was a gentleman at the church I grew up in that my dad was pastoring, and every time you, you greeted him, Hi, Dennis, how are you doing this morning? He would say, better than I deserve. 
And he always said it with a smile on his face. Now, physically, physical health-wise, he had one of the worst goes in the world. But he was better than he deserved because his joy was in Jesus Christ. If your faith, because all of our sacrifice and service comes from our faith in Jesus Christ, if your faith is in Jesus, then your joy is there also. Paul says, do not be depressed as if all hope is lost when Paul or other believers or when you and I pass from this earth. Don't think that the end has come. Don't be cast off into depression. Be glad and rejoice because of those who have gone for the cause of Christ. Paul has given it all for the cause of Christ, for Jesus and his mission. And they have been pulled together in one common goal, one common reason, one common cause, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, all for the glory of God. We remembered this morning at the beginning those who have gone before us, serving our country, giving their lives for a common cause. It wasn't the cause of Christ per se, although there were many believers, many Christians who gave their lives in the service of this country because they believed Jesus Christ was ruler supreme. We remember every year those who have gone before. And this year, Amelia noticed I was wearing a poppy. And she asked, Daddy, what's that for? And I got to explain to her how not just our country, but, sweetie, we have people in our family You never met them, but they gave their lives so that you could be free, so that you could have freedom, so that you could live in a world filled with happiness and joy and all sorts of good stuff. I mean, there are people that we we are called to be proud of in our family and in our nation for what they have done in sacrifice for this country. And I hope one day that she will recognize and ask, Dad, what's this for? What's the table for? What's that sign and symbol for? Dad, you wear a poppy every year. We do this, we do this thing. I know COVID kind of threw a wrench in the works, but we do this roughly once a month. Dad, what's this for? And I will be able to turn to her and tell her, explain to her more fully the gospel of Jesus Christ and that when we gather around the table of Jesus Christ and we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we get to proclaim his death. We get to Remember the sacrifice, the one sacrifice, not not diminishing anybody else's sacrifice in the past, not diminishing Paul's sacrifice or the Philippians' sacrifice or those who have sacrificed their lives for this country, not diminishing that at all. But this is the one sacrifice that mattered. This is the one sacrifice that changed it all. This is the one sacrifice that brings you and I together. Sweetie, we come together and we remember what Jesus has done. And we get to proclaim and tell other people in what we're doing here what he has done for us. So what Paul says is be glad and rejoice. It sounds weird, especially to the world. Be glad and rejoice when people pass away. Be glad and rejoice when people die. We are glad and rejoice when believers go into the presence of Jesus Christ. And we are not just glad and rejoice. We are excited and ecstatic at the death of Jesus Christ. Because for us it means life. Because he did not stay in that grave, because he rose again three days later, and because of that, you and I have life in him. We are called to be glad and rejoice in what he's done. I'm going to go down here. I'm going to invite our uh, violinist to come on up. Would you just take a moment to reflect 
on what Jesus has done for you, and then we'll pray. In Jesus' name, in what he's done for us on the cross. We thank you, we praise you, we rejoice and are glad in the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ. We do thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of those who have given their lives in service of this country. We pray that we would never forget or become ungrateful. And we pray, Lord, that that same thought, that that same desire in our hearts would be all the more true for the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.